So self-righteousness is, is a spiritual problem, and it's a really interesting spiritual problem. A lot of spiritual problems we may be aware of, but self-righteousness has this kind of characteristic that if you have like a lot of self-righteousness, you're not aware that you have self-righteousness because the person who is extremely self-righteous always thinks they're right. They always think that there's nothing wrong with them. They're always pointing the finger at other people saying stuff's wrong with them, you know, and nothing's ever wrong with them. And so, it, you know, they can be very corrupt and terrible and be totally unaware of it because they always have to be right. They always have to be the smartest person in the room. They always have to have all the answers and they always have to be better than everybody else. So they never realize they're totally blinded from any flaw or sin that they have. And so that's, that's the, the problem with self-righteousness is you see evil always outside of you, but you never see evil in yourself. And I love how the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame puts it kind of like this holier-than-thou mentality. We've, we all know people that have a holier-than-thou mentality. Um, but this is about um, Judge Frollo, who was a very self-righteous character in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. This is what Clopin says about him. Judge Frollo longed to purge the world of vice and sin, and he saw corruption everywhere except within. Uh, probably a more lighter version of a holier-than-thou, self-righteous attitude, is the SNL church lady. Who knows the SNL church lady? I want to see if that's a common reference. Some people think, yeah, that's, you know, sinner, right? That's, that's how she is, right? Everybody else is a sinner. She calls everybody else a sinner. Never calls herself a sinner. And if you think about it, that's not the only example of uh, self-righteousness in culture. I think one that's often missed is Dwight Schrute from The Office. <laughs> that guy. He always has to be right, you know? And he looks really bad. He, it makes him look bad because he's so just not self-aware of his faults. Dwight Schrute is, right? And he thinks he's the best. And he's so not aware of it. And it's so interesting. And um, I invited a person to church once. And uh, not once. I've done it many times. Once. <laughs> it's like, what a failure pile in a sadness bowl of a pastor. Only once? No. I invited a self-righteous person once to church. Let's call this person Dwight. So I befriended Dwight. And one of the things I noticed about this guy is he had to be the smartest person in the room. Have all the answers. Always had to be right. And he always had to correct you. You know, just real corrective of everything you say. Well, that's not the correct English. You know, one of those people, right? He could never be wrong about anything. It's almost like he thought of himself as the greatest person ever. He was always, and it was like being right for him was not a matter like he liked it. Like this guy depended on it for his very essence and being, for his survival. Like, like it's just like he had to be right. Otherwise, he couldn't live. He couldn't stand to look himself in the mirror. So I, I uh, invited him to church, and I thought, oh boy, to myself, it's going to be really interesting to see how Dwight responds to my sermons. Because, you know, my sermons are, hey, we're all sinners, we're all huge train wrecks, we're all messes, we all need Jesus, we all need the grace of God, we're all imperfect, but God still loves us. And, you know, this guy was extremely successful, you know, he thought he was God's gift to humanity. As uh, Ron Burgundy would say, he thought he was kind of a big deal, right? You know, he's good enough, he's smart enough, and doggone it, you know, people like him. Just real hunk of a guy there, right? And so this guy tried to come to church, and I preached a sermon, it was very fitting, he went on the right sermon, right? about how we're sinners. We're all messed up. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And that Jesus loves us even though we're sinners. He shows us grace. 
And every time I would say stuff like that, this guy would write me like the angriest emails ever. Essays about how terrible my sermons were. I mean, it was really good for my self-esteem. Uh, <laughs> no project self-esteem there. And so, uh, you know, he, every time he just wanted me to say, he's like, don't talk about the sin thing. Can you just talk about how much God loves us, you know? He wanted kind of a Barney sermon, right? A fortune cookie Barney sermon, you know? You know, it's like, you know, I said, we're, and I'm like, yeah, we're sinners. It's like Dwight Schrute, false. We are not sinners. God loves us. That's kind of how it was. And eventually, after four angry emails articulating how terrible I am as a pastor and a person. He could not handle it anymore. And he stopped coming to church, and he also stopped being my friend, incidentally. Um, but I found it ironic that this guy claimed to be a Christian. He claimed to read the Bible, go to church, but he could not admit for the life of him that he struggled with sin because that would detract from his rightness. And you just wonder how a person, say they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, can go to a Christian church for many, many years and miss the heart of Christianity, the heart of the gospel, that we are great sinners and we need a great Savior. We need Jesus. And you might wonder how that, that this is, how, how is this possible uh, that someone can miss the fact that we're saved by grace and faith alone and that we can't earn or merit our salvation, that it rests on the, the work of Jesus to save us. And you, just, you, you find it just that religious people that are very self-righteous find themselves, themselves just so uh, hard to accept this message of grace. Even pastors have trouble accepting this message of grace. And they claim to be Christian. I, I have some examples of this. I found this quite disturbing. In an article written last week in the Christian Post titled, Over a third of senior pastors believe good people can earn their way to heaven. Survey. This is how the article puts it. At least a third of senior pastors in the U.S. believe one, believe one can earn a place in heaven simply by being a good person, according to a nationwide survey. The findings were among several surprising responses as part of the survey conducted earlier this year by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Wow. So one out of three churches are not preaching the gospel of grace. And so you just wonder like how a guy like that would think that he was, it's all about God's love. No, never talk about sin or salvation, any of those things. And so because of this kind of not grace, not gospel kind of preaching. You see, self-righteousness has infected the Christian church because of this. According to the Legionnaire State of Theology in 2020, 47% of Christians, and this is, that's almost half the Christians here, 47%, that's a big chunk, think people only sin a little bit and that everybody's basically good. It's like, no, I mean, let's, let's, let's play your thoughts, you know, see how, how, how basically good they are. No, that's, and so it's amazing how uh, the, the church has come into this self-righteous kind of Pharisee mentality and uh, we have to realize, looking at these numbers here, that this is not the only time in human history where people have been self-righteous. This was during Paul's day in Romans 9. The religious Jews of his day didn't receive the gospel message of grace, that we're train wreck sinners and we need grace, because they thought they were good. They thought they were really something. They thought they could get their way into heaven by their good works. And they only gave lip service to grace at the time. And so this is the reason why people reject the gospel. The reason is that people 
don't want to accept the gospel because of their self-righteousness, because of a holier-than-thou mentality, and that produces that spiritual blindness which blinds them to the reality of their fallenness and sin. And we'll see this in Romans uh, 9, 27-29 as we look at our verse-by-verse -verse study. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel will be as a sand of the sea biologically, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence fully upon the earth and without delay. This is talking about Israel at the time, citing a time when they were spiritually bankrupt, and there's only a few of them that were saved. It's paralleling with this time that's going on here in Romans. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been like wiped out if God had not given us children to pass on and to hear the gospel and receive it. And so what, what Paul is doing here from Romans 9 is saying, hey, look at, you know, the promises of God have not failed because it is only to those who are spiritually saved. It is only to those who trust in Jesus, which the promises of Israel are intended for. Those promises were not intended for unbelieving Jews who reject the gospel. Those promises are for believing Jews, and that's kind of his point here in Romans 9, as we're going to see through Romans 10 through 11, that there will be a spiritual revival, a spiritual growth in Israel to fulfill those Old Testament promises. So there is a future for Israel. We're going to look at that, and it's through people coming to faith and knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point here in Romans 9, 6 throughout Romans 9 throughout is that not everybody in Israel is saved. Not everybody in Israel knows Jesus. There are people who are in the church of Israel who, who, who would claim to follow God, claim to follow Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and yet they don't really know him, as Romans 9, 6 says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. This doesn't affect the promises of God. For not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel, belong to spiritual Israel. Not all of them are saved. So this is to the believing Jews, not to unbelieving Jews. You don't get into the kingdom of God and you receive its promises through your DNA alone. That's not how you get it. It's just like the church today. Just because you go to church, just because you attend a church, does not mean that you're necessarily receiving Christ and the promises of the gospel apply to you. People get complacent in churches. They think, well, you know, my granddaddy was a preacher. My great-granddaddy was a preacher. You know, I've been going to church for 20 years. I, I've, I've got a perfect attendance card. Like, we hand them out here in the back. No, I'm just kidding. We don't hand them out. But, you know, I've got my little perfect attendance card. I go to church. I'm a really, you know, good person, you know. But that person doesn't know Christ. So, yeah, you can go to church and you can be fooled by your own self-righteousness and you can get very complacent thinking, okay, I'm riding on the coattails of my parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, all my Christian friends. But the thing is, there's no substitute. There's no way to get around that there's the only way we know and are saved and have eternal life is by believing in Jesus Christ. And so we should not get comfy or self-assured of our righteousness or anything like that in church just because we attend or we do certain rituals. No, it's about the heart and it's about sincerely trusting in Christ for your salvation. And if somebody goes to church and they do not trust in Christ and they have no affection for them, it, you can go to church a million times. It doesn't matter. What matters is a heart and trusting in Him. And that is hard when a person has a self-righteous, holier-than-thou, prideful attitude as the first century uh, Jews that uh, Paul is talking about here that rejected the gospel. But you see, while they miss Jesus, the Gentiles, these unreligious people, these people who they thought were dirty, those other people outside of us, those people ended up receiving grace all along. This is what Paul says here in Romans 9.30. What well, shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not 
pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. This is a remarkable verse in the Bible because this is saying that the people who were not trying to be good, the people that were thought of as dirty and unclean, those are the very people that get into heaven, the Gentiles. It is the greatest of sinners who are the very people who receive salvation. The people outside of the church, not the people inside of the church, those are the people that receive the gospel. The people of the so-called people of God, the Jews, thought, okay, we're good to go. We're the chosen people. We just do whatever we want. No, they didn't receive it. Their, it, their self-righteousness was blinding them. And so it's amazing here to see that these Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And here the gospel is, is viewed as the gospel of justification by faith alone. There's other elements of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here this is focusing on specifically the gospel of justification by faith alone. That salvation is not by working, trying, and achieving, but by resting and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal salvation. And so Paul calls this, this gospel, the righteousness by faith. And this is the whole point of Romans. This gospel of justification by faith. You see it in Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall by faith. So this is a gospel message of justification by faith alone. And this is a message that we as Christians, we can't compromise or go soft on this gospel message. I have heard people say stuff like, well, you know, Christians can have different views on justification. You can hold a whole bunch of different views. It's okay. You shouldn't worry about the state of your soul if you reject justification by faith alone. It's a non-essential. Who cares? And I've heard people say that mere Christianity does not include Justification by faith alone is not an essential. But I want to be as clear as I possibly can. Christians can disagree over a lot of things, a lot of different things. I know, I'm sure there's people in this room that have a variety of different beliefs about the end times. That have a variety of different beliefs about baptism, whether you think it's immersion or sprinkling, or whether you think Sunday's a Sabbath or not, or just a, a day where we go to church. Whatever it is, Christians can have a whole bunch of different views on doctrines and perspectives. As we'll see in Romans 14, people can disagree in the church. We don't have to have like the, the same monolithic opinion. We all be like, you know, robots. No, we can have differences. But here's the point I want to stress. The gospel of justification by faith alone is an essential and necessary part of the Christian faith. And that should be the hill we die on, is that message. We can never, ever compromise on the truth of the gospel. I love the way the late R.C. Sproul put it about justification by faith alone. We should be willing to die for those truths that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Not for every point of doctrine, not for every dispute. I mean, sometimes we're fighting over theological issues that we should never be fighting about. But when it comes to the essential truths like the gospel, you must let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. Now, I agree with Sproul here, and his words reflect the seriousness and the urgency of how we have to protect and maintain the gospel. And the spiritual perils and dangers of rejecting is very severe. That's not just Sproul's opinion as a man. That is the words of the Apostle Paul of how serious it is, how we must hold fast to the gospel, no matter what happens. 
That's what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They're turning away from that grace in Jesus to a works-based salvation. Not that there is another one, but there are some troubling you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. He says it again, as I said, we've said before. So now I say it again. He's serious here. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. Greek word for curse is anathema, which means let him be damned to hell. Paul does not mince words here. He's very serious about this. This is very serious. And it amazes me about this is that he says, even if an angel from heaven were to come and give you a different gospel, obviously an angel from heaven wouldn't give you that would be something else, obviously. But he said, even if that were to happen, let him be condemned to hell. And so if an angel were to come to me, say in the middle of the night, I don't know, it's always in the middle of the night people think of an angel coming to you, right? And if we were to say, hey, Nate, I have a brand new revelation for you. you know, it's always like when you get a message from God, it's always got to be a deep voice. If you're like an angel coming, you're like, hey, Nate, I have a brand new revelation for you. You know, you're like, Nate, I'm never going to get that voice out of my head ever again. That is ridiculous. Well, you guys have seen me with some of the toddlers. I do some weird jokes, but... <laughs> But, you know, he's like, you know, the angel comes and says, hey, I got a I got a brand new gospel for you. I got a brand new revelation for you in order to get to heaven, Nate, in order to have new heavens and new earth and have a resurrection body. In order to do that, you got to work your tail off. You got to be good enough. You got to be worthy. I would tell that angel will let you be accursed. I would not believe that angel and neither should you. Any apostle, any prophet, doesn't matter who they are, an entire church can say no matter how, influ how influential or powerful they are, it does not matter if they are teaching a different gospel other than the gospel of grace. He says, let them be accursed. Because justification, salvation, grace is, is, by, is by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. That's what it is in the Bible. And I think God says these things in this scripture because he knows people are going to claim. People claiming to be apostles, prophets, angels, claiming to be powerful people to say, hey, I got a private revelation for you. An angel came to me or someone came to me. A spiritual presence came to me. A spiritual power came to me and said, this is going to happen. And you know what? This is a different gospel. Here it is. You got to work for your salvation. You got to really try hard. Pull up your bootstraps. Do it the American way. And so the reason, that's why Paul warns us about it, right? Because Paul warns us about it because this was going to happen. People are going to claim that they had a revelation, had a, a personal experience of a different gospel and say, oh, I've got some revelation for you. People have claimed that. So even if that happens, even if it's a highly emotional experience, it does not matter if it is confirming a false gospel. Paul says, let it be accursed. Let it be damned to hell. It doesn't matter how white the light, how beautiful it is. You know what it says in 2 Corinthians? It says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. No matter how beautiful the colors are, no matter how glorious it is, Paul says if it's a different gospel, let him be damned to hell. And so I think the reason why the gospel of grace is so serious is because it's something that our souls depend on our salvation. 
depends on. And you see this in the next verse about the gospel of salvation by faith alone here. About the Israelites who did not believe it. It says in Romans 9, 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So they were trying to establish their righteousness by reaching that law. They never reached it. They never actually kept that law. The law is perfect, as Paul and Jesus teaches. The law is perfect because God is perfect. His standard for righteousness is not imperfection, but perfection because God is perfect. And what is so fascinating is that history records for us since these first century Jewish legalists could not keep the law perfectly. And so that's part of the reason why they didn't receive this righteousness. But what they did is you kind of lower the bar so you can kind of jump over the bar, right? You lower it, you know, like the bar's the way up here. Yeah, let's lower it a bit. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when I was growing up, they probably still have them today. When I was growing up, when I was growing up, they had those, um, they had those, those, those basketball sets where you could like adjust the height, right? Of the, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Basketball, so you could lower it a lot, right? And you could feel like Kobe Bryant and slam dunk it. You know, you're like, I may not be good at basketball, but let's lower that a little bit. Make me feel good about myself. Notice I say Kobe, because, you know, back then the Lakers were the best. I'm sorry. I know I'm in Utah. Be a Jew to Jew and a Greek to a Greek. I know I'm stepping on toes here. But yeah, you know, you lower that bar to feel like Kobe, you know, and like, you're slam dunking, you're feeling pretty good. Well, yeah, you lowered the bar. Of course you're going to feel good about yourself. And that's exactly what they did. And by the way, that's exactly what all legalists do. They just lower that bar and make yourself feel good, you know. So, you know, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength means just be nice around people and smile. It's like, no, that means in your thoughts, heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And being completely self-controlled means... I'm not going to get drunk or do something crazy or cuss in front of people, but when I'm on the freeway by myself, I might say some words when no one's around. <laughs> See, that's what they did. They lowered it. You lower the, the bar so you feel good about yourself. You're like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. It's like, yeah, you lowered it down to nothing. Of course you're feeling good about yourself. And so this is what they would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I didn't commit adultery, so I'm, I'm a pretty good guy here. It's like, oh, that's, all, that's, all, that's a pretty low bar. It's like, I didn't murder anybody. Well, what do you want, a cookie? You know, it's, come on, you know, that's a pretty low bar right there. And Jesus says, yeah, well, yeah, because your heart matters. And if you committed adultery in your heart, you've broken the law here. And so you're like, okay, well, you know, I love my neighbor. I'm like nice to my friends and stuff. You know, hooray, you're nice to your friends. Here's a little cupcake for you, you know. I'm such a good person. No, Jesus says the standard is love your enemies. They want to lower that bar, you know? And so this is what all legalists do. That's what the first century Jews did, is they want to lower that sucker so you can, you can feel really good about yourself and say you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, you know? And so their version, they also get to modify grace to be kind of impure. They're like, well, I know I messed up here, but if I work harder and harder, God's going to do more things, you know, God's going to, you know, give me grace here. If I just, if I just try my best, God will make up the rest kind of thing. Sound familiar? It sounds like a, a lot of Christians who I've heard say that, who think, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, he, I'm in here by, by grace. I'm saved by grace. But once I'm in, I got to work my tail off. I got to keep on striving to stay in. Once I'm in by grace, I got to, you know, keep on running that race, running up that hill, right? And Paul's like, no, that's the opposite of grace. That's not the gospel. It's nothing to do with your effort. And your righteousness it has to do with the righteousness and effort of Jesus Christ. That's a pure gospel. That's pure grace. So you are saved by grace and maintained by grace. We don't move beyond grace. Trust me, if you're honest with your thoughts, right, you should be moving deeper and deeper into grace. You need it. So do I. 
We don't move beyond Jesus and his work for us and his kindness towards us. We grow deeper and deeper into our relationship with Jesus. It isn't Jesus plus my effort. No, it's just all Jesus. It's just all Jesus. So it's by grace alone that we are saved and that we are maintained. This is what he says in verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Meaning, it was never by works at all. It was only in their own mind that they thought they were saved by works. That's what they thought. That's why it says, as if, it's not actually, as if it were based on works. It was never by works, and so they had distorted the plan and purposes of God for themselves and for their own self-righteousness. And so they were so convinced that they were right. They were so convinced. And this is what it comes down to. Self-righteousness is not doing it for God. It's doing it for yourself so you can feel good. It's, it's service to self, not service to Christ. So they stumbled over the gospel. They stumbled over Jesus as Paul says, continues the thought here in Romans 9.33 and kind of getting us into the next chapter, sneaking us into Romans 10.1. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Christ in the gospel, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10.1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. So because they reject the gospel, Paul is praying for their salvation. They don't have salvation. That's why he's praying for it. They've rejected the gospel. This is why, why Paul is pleading and praying to God that they would be saved. He's doing that in Rome, beginning of Romans chapter 1. He says, I wish myself that I could be accursed and cut off from Christ if I can just get my, my, my Jewish brothers saved. It's very, you know, just amazing expression of love and affection for people when he says that. So the first century, you thought they were good. They thought they were the chosen ones and everything. So they rested in that and they didn't really worry about it. They just thought, okay, I'm so self-righteous. And so when they saw Jesus, they're like, nope, we're, we're stumbling over the grace of Jesus. We don't need grace. We're God's chosen people. We're the good people. Those Gentiles out there, that's the bad people. Because the truth is, if you always think you are right, if you always think you're correct and that you can never be wrong, and you always think you are the good guy, no matter what, and everybody else is a bad guy, then you're never going to get grace. You're never going to receive the gospel because you don't think you need it. You don't think you need it at all. And to others that receive grace, the self-righteous person, they look down on you like, oh man, that person needs a lot of help. They've got problems, right? That's how they are. Oh, mm, I'm so morally superior. Look at this lower life form. Oh, that's such a mess. Mm. You know, always do English accents or pompousness, but you know, like you're such a pompous person, right? Like, oh, this person, oh, they're having problems, but I am so morally superior. You know, kind of thing. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So, yeah, I, I want to be clear, you know. The reason why also non-religious people reject the, the gospel is because of self-righteousness, too. You might think that's weird, you know. You're like, well, they don't have, like, the law. They don't, you know, have this law or anything like that. They're non-religious. So, like, how can they be self-righteous? 
But I think if you think about it carefully, the worst supervillains in, in all of movie history, they're not like very Christ-like at all. They have no, they're not following any laws or principle. But all of these supervillains, like if you think about like the worst, most heinous supervillains in like cinema movie history, they're all incredibly self-righteous. I think of Colonel Nathan Jessup from A Few Good Men, right? He's like, I'm a Marine, I'm tough, I'm keeping this country safe, you know? Like, you guys, you don't understand what it takes to be hard like me, you know? He's one of those guys, you know? You know so he's like, you can't handle the truth. That's, he's, he's that guy. We all know that line, right? You can't handle the truth? Okay. You think of Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, right? Totally rich and smug kind of guy, you know? And that guy's just so mean. I mean, they did an SNL sketch on, sketch on beating him up because he's such a mean guy and it's, it's a wonderful life. You think of Hans Gruber from Die Hard and his brother in Die Hard 3. I watch too many movies, right? That's what you're thinking. I know it. He's totally thinking that. But he, th he like, thinks he's so morally superior to everybody else. Like, you know, he's got an accident. Like, oh, well, look at his police, the policemen. Look what the police have, you know? They're, you know, Emperor Palpatine, right? I mean, even Star Wars. I mean, when he's talking to Anakin into the dark side, right? He's like, he's like, oh, the Jedi are evil. Look at them. And, you know, come to the dark star, Pelagius the Wise. You can get life and save your wife. You know, he starts, he's a good guy, right? I mean, I hate to bring this up. I was told not to, but you know me and rules. I break them all the time. Walter White from Breaking Bad. I mean, come on, if you think about it, that guy is the most selfish, like most self-righteous, holier than thou. I mean, yeah, he breaks the rules, but he has like some higher sense of morality and he just thinks he's better than everybody else. He's very smug. And of course, you can't forget Scar from Lion King, right? With that English accent, he thought he was so much better than Mufasa. I'm like saying it like it's news. You guys all know Lion King. <laughs> These movies capture a reality. People are, this is a human predicament here. People are so self-righteous. I'm going to read you a quote from a famous crime lord and mobster, Al Capone, who murdered people and was a morally corrupt, bankrupt human being. He said, I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them have a good time, and all I get is abuse. You know, it's just like, I mean, it's amazing. A recent study shows that people strongly believe that they are virtuous and morally superior to others. This is a common trait uh, from a, uh, a psychologist, Ben Taplin from um, London, and he comments on the Huffington Post. He says, the individuals in our sample consistently judge themselves to be superior to the average person. So, yeah, there's a problem here. So what about you and I? Do we struggle with self-righteousness? Now, if I've been like railing on self-righteousness and how they don't recognize it, like it would be ironic if I'm like, I'm not self-righteous. It would be like, I, you know, to, I, I, we all have to recognize, right? It'd be strange if we didn't, that we also struggle with self-righteousness. We, we have to recognize that as people who accept Christ and accept his grace. We know we're train wrecks, but we still struggle with that lingering little Pharisee inside of us. We still want to believe are pressed about ourselves. We're constantly framing things like, okay, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys, right? And that's how we try to frame it. That's how people are. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the main character. You know, I'm William Wallace. I'm the good guy. And all those bad guys out there. But Christianity says, no, you're the bad guy. You're actually straight up the villain. Jesus is a good guy who saved you as a villain. And so believers accept the gospel, but we still struggle. To live it out consistently with that little bit of remaining self-righteousness. A little bit of church lady in us, right? So what I'm saying is that while, while Christians accept Christ, we trust in Christ for the gospel, we still live inconsistently with the gospel, don't we? Like Peter did in Galatians. Peter was like, you know, 
All of a sudden, you know, I mean, you know, this, these Jewish legalists come out and all of a sudden little Caiaphas pops up in his heart and he's like, okay, well, I'm better than these Gentiles. I'm like way holy. Like, I don't need to eat with these people. You know, and Paul's like, dude, you are, you are living inconsistently with the gospel of grace. I'm pretty sure Paul didn't say dude. That's like a California layover right there. So, but yeah, he was living in legalism and self-righteousness. We can live and consistently live with that. And I would say we do so regularly. Hope you recognize it. Don't want you to be too self-righteous. I love the way Richard Lovelace puts it. We all, we all automatically gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification, per personal holiness. We start each day with our personal security resting not upon on, on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. Since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we inevitably moved to set a self-righteousness which falsifies a record to achieve a sense of peace. So we're propelled towards believing our press that we're not that bad. We're actually pretty good. We're propelled towards being smug and saying, oh, I know new things or I'm feeling righteous, so I'm, I'm really a good, good Christian here. And this is a common experience I have that Lovelace describes. You know, this, I'll just give you like a mundane example. You're like, okay, yeah, you know, I woke up this morning. I, I prayed like a good little Christian girl or boy. I prayed, you know, have my cup of coffee or tea, whatever it is you drink, you know, in the mornings. Uh, you know, I have my, well, you know, I have my coffee, my, 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 uh, my Bible reading. I had my prayer time. You know, I listened to some worship music, you know, and I had just a great time of devotions. And so, you know, I bet I'm going to have a terrific, wonderful, A-plus day. Because I was good. I started my day off good with a little prayer, you know, and you thinking about God and reading the Bible. So I'm going to have a good day. God's going to repay me for this one. I mean, I, I did the right thing. And I can't tell you how many times, like, my day has gone, like, really bad. And then I'm like, God, I did devotions this morning. I prayed. I actually, was, I actually did what I was supposed to. I've been so good at church. I'm such a good person. God, why is my day going so badly? You see, I am banking on my achievements rather than Christ's achievements for me. And then you have your bad days and you wake up in the morning and you're grumpy at your wife and kids, you know, no morning devotions, no prayer. And you're off to work and you're just generally feeling bad about yourself. You know, you failed to have a great morning. And you actually, I do this, I expect bad things to happen to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to wreck after this morning. This is not good, you know. I was like wondering, I'm like, this sermon might be bad because Kenny woke me up at 3 a.m. screaming, you know. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you wake up at 3 a.m. to a child screaming for bloody murder, you're not typically in the best kind of mood. You're a little angry, right? So spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? So, you know, you, you wonder, you know, when you have struggles, okay, this is going to go bad for me. And you see, thinking this way, this transactional, non-relational way with God, thinking this way destroys our walk with Christ. Because first off, it makes us bitter towards God because we expect things from Him. I did my part. Help me out here, God. Secondly, it makes you arrogant, which gets you farther and farther away from God. You're like, I am so good and wonderful. When you're focused on like how great you are, kind of like a, you just kind of narcissistically like, I'm so terrific. You're not focusing on God. You're not focusing on Christ. Thirdly and lastly, and I you know, really feel this way, thinking this way and having to constantly do things to feel good, to feel like you're righteous, to feel like you're good enough, it is exhausting. It is 
draining. And I, as a Christian, constantly fall into this, this trap of thinking, I need to do more to make myself feel like I'm worth something, like I have to accomplish something. We, we start the Christian life off by grace, Jesus' unconditional love for us, and we, we, we start off the Christian life with a cross, like I'm saved, thank God. And then we replace that cross with a ladder, with a mountain. You're running up that hill, you're running up that building, you know, you know that, that, oh, that whole song, you know, that you hear on the radio all the time. Striving, running, achieving, and it, you know, it's just never enough for you, and so you, you just have nothing left, and you're so tired, and you're exhausted, and you can't get out of bed because you feel like another day of trying to strive and achieve, and you just feel so heavy. And that's when we realize we, we got to be focused on Christ and the gospel. That will give us rest. I talked to a pastor. He's like, yeah, I totally feel like I'm constantly on a treadmill. This is a guy who preaches grace every Sunday. And I, I feel that way too. I fall into the trap of thinking I'm on a treadmill. I got to keep on going. The next Sunday has got to be a pretty good sermon, Nate. You got to keep on going. You got to call this person, do this, do that, and accomplish this, Nate. And I have to say, whoa, 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 Nate. Rest in Christ. His accomplishments, not yours. Because it's exhausting. It's exhausting and draining to constantly try to feel like you're, you're measuring up, you're adding up, you're good enough. And that's why we never move beyond the simple truth that Jesus was good enough for us. He achieved it for us. We don't go past that simple truth. It's the simplest truth that we have to let marinate in our soul. Not a quick little microwave fix. We're talking about a crock pot here. Marinate in your soul kind of thing. Oh, my food analogies. <laughs> so we have to keep on letting that in us, letting us know that we never move beyond grace, but deeper and deeper into his grace, into his love, because we will wake up every morning thinking, okay, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I need to do X, Y, and Z. I need to get to the next part of the ladder. I need to get to the next part of, of Mount Everest. I need to do this and that. We have to let in our soul to give us true rest for our souls. I am not good enough. Jesus was good enough for me. And we find that. We find true and remaining rest. And that's why Jesus says, knowing him and trusting in him is eternal life. That is heaven and knowing Christ and getting our rest and fulfillment in him. And if you've not done so and you're, you've come to church this Sunday and you are just tired, you're exhausted as so many people are, and you're just tired of being weighed down and anxious, rest in Jesus not in you. Rest in his accomplishments, not yours. His merit, not yours. His worthiness, not yours. And you will be free from so much pain and agony in this life in looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us pray.